Good morning, church. It is good to be together. It's been good already, lifting high the name of Jesus Christ together through worship, and now we get to surrender our hearts before him as we turn our ears to him, and in this moment now as we open God's word, we actually get to hear Almighty God speak to us, and I'm really looking forward to doing that, but before we do, uh, I just want to take a quick moment and express some gratitude. Uh, Gratitude first to the Lord. God has been so good to this church family, has he not? God has been so good to us as individuals and to us as a church. And I just think about this last week as uh, six individuals were in Haiti serving the Lord and serving the church there. Uh, I think about this coming week as Team Romania is getting ready to leave and so many individuals serving and loving and caring for people beyond our walls. Uh, But then I think to this week as well, and I think about a week like High Five and seeing how we are loving our church family and making disciples within our walls. And glory to God and grateful to the 150, 200 plus that were involved in making that a week. That was the best week of summer. And a huge thank you to Pastor Robbie and his team for all the work that they put into that. We pray that your children were blessed by that and that you as families will continue to be for the weeks to come. Well, if you would please uh, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Judges chapter 13. Turn to Judges chapter 13. That's where we're going to be hearing from the Lord this morning. And as you go there, uh, I want to take just a brief moment and walk down memory lane together. So if you've been with us really since the turn of this year, since we stepped into 2016, then a lot of this might be familiar to you. As we began this year, we began proclaiming who we are, who we are striving to be by God's grace, who we are as individuals, and who we are as a church family begging the Lord, crying out to the Lord, asking that the Lord would make us these kinds of people and this kind of church. First, that we would be a people that are unashamed, unashamed in our adoration and our worship of Jesus Christ, that when we come together and when we leave this place, that our desire would be to exalt Jesus Christ in our midst and in our lives. Not only that, but a people who are unapologetic as we proclaim truth from God's word, as we share God's word with our families, as we share God's word with our friends, as we gather together in small groups and we open God's word, as we come together on Sunday mornings and we hear from God's word, we want to be unapologetic as we proclaim what God has said. Also, a people that are unafraid, unafraid in our witness that we are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness, not unnecessarily loud, not obnoxious, but a willingness to share the truth regardless of the circumstance and regardless of the consequence. We want to be a people who are unrestrained in our love, unrestrained. There are no bounds. There are no limits to the willingness to love and to care for others in our church and in our community, that we would constantly be expressing our love towards others, even at self-expense. And then finally, in all of that, a people that are unceasing, unceasing in prayer, recognizing that without humble dependence upon the Lord, without on our knees, face down before Almighty God, that nothing will ever happen in this place or in our lives that will echo into eternity unless God does it. This is who we 
are called to be, who we are striving to be, and who we are only by God's grace. Now, after that series, we then turned our attention to the series that we're in now in the book of Judges, looking at He Is. So we've described who we are called to be, and then we recognize that we can only be who we've been called to be because of who He is. Now, in the book of Judges, we have seen that He, God, is sovereign, warrior, and pursuer. He is sovereign. That means that Almighty God is in control of everyone and everything, that there is nothing that goes outside of his view, that there is nothing that stands outside of his power. He reigns over it all. That God is also warrior, and that he fights on behalf of his people, and he wars for us in Christ. That he is also our pursuer, that even when we were not worth pursuing, when we were ungodly, when we were weak, Christ died for us, that our God pursues relationship with us at the greatest self-expense, who we are striving to be because of who he is. Now, as we've looked at the book of Judges, we have seen that he is even when we are not. We have seen time and time again that he continues to be sovereign warrior and pursuer even when we are not who God has called us to be. That God, even in our unfaithfulness, remains faithful. This series has focused on God's grace, on God's mercy, on God's patience, and on God's faithfulness. So this morning, we're now going to take another little turn, and this is still part of the series, but it's like a mini-series within the series, where we're going to be experiencing the life of Samson together. Now, we have seen what we're about to see over the next four weeks. We've seen it time and time and time again, and yet I believe it's highlighted, it's magnified to its greatest degree as we see the story unfold over the next four weeks. We're going to begin to give center stage what we've been seeing on the peripheral this entire series. Over the next four weeks, we're going to observe what happens when God's people lose sight of who he is. When their eyes are no longer fixed on who he is and who we then become. What does it look like when man stands in the place of God? When the focus is no longer on the great I am, and instead we turn our attention and assert ourselves as the I am in the story. When we take the focus off of the great I am, and we become the I am. You see, I am is what happens when God is minimized, when God is syncretized, or when God is ostracized from our lives. When God is minimized. When I have a lesser view in my mind, a lesser view in my heart, and when I come to worship Almighty God, I'm worshiping him as someone less than who he's proclaimed himself to be, who he's revealed himself to be in his word. When I syncretize Almighty God, and I begin to just try and assimilate him into my life, and it's like, well, I have this going on over here, and here's my marriage, here are my kids, here's my career, here are my hobbies, and oh yeah, I'll add a little bit of Jesus too. 
and life becomes just a series of Tupperwares and the food better not mix because if they do, my three-year-old's going to go banana sandwiches. I think this is sometimes the way that we treat God. And it's like, I just can't have God mix in because then that's going to make things all messed up and I just don't know what that's going to impact and so I just can't do that. And instead of understanding that he is Lord over all, I let him be Lord of my life on Sundays between 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. When God is ostracized, I don't minimize him. I don't even try and assimilate him into my life. No, instead I just forcibly suppress him. I cast him off to the side. I entirely dismiss him, wanting him to be absent from my life. When I forget who he is, I live like I am. I believe the story of Samson in the book of Judges is the pinnacle, or maybe better said, is the valley of this reality as seen in the book of Judges. And so this morning, what I would like for us to do is to get a lay of the land, almost to dip our toe in the water of the Samson story, because I'm just telling you, the next three weeks, oh my, the next three weeks, things get wild, and they get wild really, really fast, and I'm so thankful that Pastor Nate gets to preach about that next week. (laughs) What would it look like to live as if I am? This week is teeing up the next three weeks. Because if we don't grab a hold of some of the things that we see here in Judges chapter 13, there are going to be a lot of things in Judges 14, 15, and 16 that we don't really grasp, I believe, in the way that the Lord wants us to grasp. So there are some groundwork that we have to lay in order to grab a hold of the next three weeks. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, thank you for this opportunity to Soften our hearts now to surrender our hearts before your word. Oh God, would you speak to us? Would you use the power of your Holy Spirit through the power of your word to help us to fix our eyes on you? Lord, to be reflective and introspective of what's going on in our hearts. And Lord, more than anything, that at the end of this time, that we would love you more and know you more and trust you more and enjoy you more. God, we trust you to do these things in Christ's name. Amen. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. We've seen this phrase, oh, several times now throughout the book of Judges. The first time we saw it was in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. This was the introductory sentence to the Othniel narrative. It begins by proclaiming the people of Israel did what was evil in God's sight. Said this in 3.12 before Ehud, and 4.1, and 6.1, and 10.6 before Deborah, Gideon, and Jephthah. And now, for the last time, this is what's going to introduce the Samson narrative. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, in our English translations, they work really hard to smooth out the language so that it's easy to read and easy to understand, and that's extremely helpful 99.9% of the time. 
Uh, I found a 0.1% because I think this is so helpful for us as we understand a more like wooden translation of what it says here in the Hebrew text. The verse could be rendered, and the children of Israel continued to do the evil in the eyes of the Lord. Continue to do the evil, not a evil, not some evil, not any kind of evil, but the evil, definite article, a specific kind of evil that the people of Israel continued to do time and time again. And what was that in the book of Judges? Idolatry. Idolatry, time and time again. Now, idolatry is taking anything other than God and turning it into the ultimate goal or hope of my life. Idolatry is taking anything other than God and making it the ultimate goal or hope of my life. This is what happens when I lose sight of who he is. When I lose sight of who he is, I live as if I am. And then, because now I am the I am, I begin to create gods after my own image, rather than recognizing that I have been created in God's image. And so instead, I begin to refashion God in my mind. I begin to refashion God as I approach him, and now he's this God that I've created, this God that exists to serve me, this God that's there for me, this God that I've created to serve me, to match my desires. When I am, he is my servant. When I am, he is my servant. How many of us might find ourselves in that place this morning? Oh, we would probably never say it, right? Because that's uncomfortable and it doesn't sound right. But do we live as if God exists to serve me? Do we live as if I was created and I exist for the sole purpose of serving God and glorifying God and enjoying God? Or do I live as if God is there and he is present in my life and he has extended these things to me so that he might serve me well? It's this idea of, God, you owe me. Or what about this? Have you ever said, I just don't know if I can forgive God? What position have we just taken when we go there in our hearts? Or God, I did X, and so now you have to do Y. That's the way that it works. And God just gives me more, 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 and it's about me, me, me. And what about this? Well, God would never let blank happen because after all, God is after my happiness. God is after my health. God exists to serve me when I am I live as if he is my servant. And so 13.1 continues, people of Israel did what was evil, did the evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is 40 years of enslavement. Can you just imagine that with me for a moment? 40 years, if we were to take a poll, which we are not going to do this morning, but a large percentage of the population of this room would be 40 years or under. That means for the entirety of your life, if you were living in this time, all you've experienced is enslavement and oppression. 
Not only that, but some people would get really excited about this whole 40-year thing. It's like, well, in the Bible, 40 years is the number of completion. I mean, you look back and the flood, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And you look at the wilderness wandering, and they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And so now, being under Philistine oppression for 40 years, this is the complete and total judgment of the Lord. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But either way, 40 years is twice as long as any other oppression that we've seen in the book of Judges. And it's an entire generation of people, God's people, living as slaves in their own homes, living as slaves in their God-promised and God-given land. Not only this, but this 40-year oppression is under the Philistines, and it's really important that we grab a hold of who it is that's oppressing them because we've already seen the Philistines before in Judges chapter 3. I have it up here on the screen, Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. God gave the Philistines a specific purpose for the people of Israel as they moved into the land. It says this, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, and the first would be the five lords of the Philistines, and then some other ones with really cool names. Verse 4 they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. You see it in here in all of the purpose clauses. This is why they existed. You see the highlights. They were left to test Israel. They were to prepare them to defend their God-given inheritance that the people of Israel might know war so that they could protect the land that God had given to them. They were there to see whether or not the people of Israel would obey the command of the Lord. God left them there. He gave the people a specific command. And now, in ultimate rebellion, the people are not warring against the Philistines. No, instead... They are capitulating to the Philistine dominance. They are joyfully submitting themselves to this enslavement of the Philistines. They are beginning to assimilate their lives with the lives of this pagan nation that they were supposed to war against for God's specific purposes. How do we know that they had failed to obey and that they were giving in to this enslavement? Well, if we go back and trace the other stories that we've seen in Judges, we've seen in 3.9 the story of Othniel. After the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he gave them into the hand of their enemies, what did the people do? The people cry out to the Lord. Now, we've said before this likely isn't a cry of repentance. This is a cry of deliverance. God, I don't like what I'm experiencing right now. Make all the bad things go away. God, let it just be done. I'm through with it. Please, God, would you do something? Would you save us? Would you rescue us? We saw it in 3.15, in 4.3, in 6.6, in 10.10. In each of the stories of the major judges, the people cry out for deliverance. And now here, for the first time in one of the stories of our major judges, the pattern is broken. There is absolutely no cry of repentance, and there's not even a cry for deliverance. They are completely sold out under Philistine oppression. 
The people of Israel do not cry out to the Lord. Instead, what they begin to do is they begin to intermarry with this Philistine people. And we'll see that this is a direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 7 here on the screens. God's speaking to this generation before they enter into the promised land. And he says to them, you shall not intermarry with them, the pagan nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and you would be destroyed quickly. For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the faces of the earth. God chose them as his treasured possession. Out of all the other nations on the face of the earth, Almighty God set his eyes on this people. And yet the evil, idolatry, sin is so alluring. It is so deceptive. In fact, it's even blinding. It leads me to be satisfied with far less than what Almighty God desires to give to me as his child. Idolatry leads me to believe that having or experiencing very, very little is entirely sufficient and entirely satisfying. You see, when I am and I begin to fashion idols after myself, he is unnecessary. When I am, he becomes unnecessary in my life. And it's like, I'm already satisfied. Life is already abundant. Everything is sufficient enough. I don't need anything else. The people in the book of Judges found themselves satisfied in lust and earthly pleasure and power rather than being satisfied in the God who chose them as his treasured possession. When I am, I create idols God's after my image to serve my desires so that I can satisfy what I think needs satisfying. The Bible tells us that Almighty God is greater than any idols that you and I could ever create or come up with in our hearts. That satisfaction in him is the greatest satisfaction, is the only place in this life and for all eternity that we will find satisfaction. And I think oftentimes we live our lives with this belief that there's this disconnect, this disconnect between pursuing what's satisfying and pleasurable and then pursuing relationship with the Lord. And I can't have both. I can either have one or the other because if I follow Jesus, then I have to say no, 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 no to all of these things over here. I spent a lot of my Christian life believing that that was true. And oh, woe is me how hard it is to follow Jesus. And yet that is not what the Bible proclaims to us. In Psalm chapter 16, it says, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand God there are pleasures forevermore brothers and sisters in Christ do we know what this means it means that our pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction is not divorced from our pursuit of the Lord but that these two realities these two pursuits are inextricably tied with one another that the way I pursue the greatest satisfaction here and for eternity the place that I pursue the greatest joy and pleasure is in almighty God and in him alone God is telling us that he's more satisfying than any idols 
that we could create. I think C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Here in Judges 13, the people of Israel are doing the evil in God's eyes. They're doing what seems right in their own eyes. They're oppressed in their own homes, having completely accepted Philistine dominance. They are so used to bondage that they don't even have the sense to cry out for deliverance anymore. They've grown so accustomed to their enslavement that they no longer even cry out to God or believe that there's an existence without that kind of enslavement. And how many of us in this room this morning find ourselves in that same place where we've just grown so accustomed to a life-dominating sin that we're just like, well, this is just the way that life's always going to be. And I'm never going to be able to shake it, so I've just got to learn to live with it. Oh, brother and sister in Christ and friends in this room, God has promised us more than that. Far, far more than that. You do not have to live in that sin anymore. Jesus Christ has come, and he has promised that he will sanctify for all time those whom he's already perfected. Brother or sister in Christ, become who you already are in Christ. Sometimes I think we say, well, God has the power to forgive me, so I'll just go about sinning and pray for forgiveness. Did you know that the same power that forgives is the same power that we can use to resist? That the same power that God uses to give us grace and forgive is the same power to enable us to turn from sin and pursue holiness. Let us not live as if life has to always be this way. Let us believe that there's freedom in Christ, that we can be slaves not to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Now that's verse one. (laughs) So uh, let's get moving. Verse two. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children Here in verse 2, we now enter into the narrative, and here the players come out onto the field. The characters are now brought into the story. There's a man named Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, and we're told some details about Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, and this is really important because any time in biblical narrative, in Hebrew narrative, when details are given, they're usually important for the rest of the story. And so, what do we learn about Mrs. Manoah? We learn that she was barren and had no children. Sounds a bit redundant to me. She couldn't have children, and she didn't have children. Okay, Uh, 13.3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, and you have not born children. Oh, that's really helpful, angel of the Lord. Uh, You don't have children, And you can't have children. I think a point is trying to be made. You see, barrenness in the Old Testament was the most devastating curse 
that a woman could experience. And it's fascinating that this story comes on the heels of the story of Jephthah. Jephthah who had a child but sacrificed his child. It's interesting that this story comes on the heels of those three little verses that told us about those guys, Ebzon, Elon, and Abdon, who between the three of them had at least 100 children. I think a contrast is being made for a purpose. The angel of the Lord continues, but you shall conceive and bear a son. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Now just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine being Mrs. Manoah and Manoah and experiencing the devastating reality of infertility. And I know that some in this room and many in our lives have this same struggle. And it's a devastating reality and devastating in a different way during this time. And now the angel of the Lord appears and he begins to speak hope to this woman. You see, there are two miracles that are happening here in verse 3. First, the angel of the Lord appears. Remember, there's been no cry for help. No one has cried out for deliverance. No one has called upon Almighty God. And yet he comes. If God only helped, if God only came when we asked him, what poor and sad lives we would have. But God in his grace continues to pour it out and pour it out and pour it out. Second miracle, the one who could not conceive is about to conceive. Verse four, he goes on, therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 4 begins with, therefore. In other words, in light of this miraculous conception, this child is to be unique. He has a specific God-given purpose, and because of this, he has a God-given vow, a Nazarite vow. The terms that it begins describing here come from Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And essentially, the Nazarite vow was this. Nothing from the vine, so no strong drink, no haircuts, and no dead bodies. No wine, no haircuts, and no dead bodies. This was to show their set-apartness unto God, their holiness, their consecrated unto God for a specific purpose so why all of these extremely odd requirements? Why this vow? I believe that the Nazarite vow is this essentially. It's saying a definite no to certain things in order to say a definite yes to God. I believe that is the essence of a Nazarite vow. It is saying a definite no to certain things in order to say a definite yes to God. And this becomes so, so, so important in 14, 15, and 16 in the next three weeks. Samson's life then should be about purposely saying no in order to say yes to God. Now, number six tells us that these vows were usually voluntary and lasted for a time. Here, the angel of the Lord makes the vow on Samson's behalf, and it says from the time he is in the womb until the day of his death, this is a for-life kind of vow. And then in 13.5, what is the purpose of Samson's life? 
He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I believe that this small verse is overflowing with grace. Remember, there has been no cry for deliverance at this point. There has not even been a call for God, deliver us from this. Get us out of this. We want to be done. As we've seen throughout the rest of Judges so far, each time that the people have cried out for deliverance, God has taken a man that was already there on the scene and available and positioned him to begin to save Israel. Instead, in this story, God appears unsolicited and he offers hope to a barren woman, to her family, and to an entire nation And he causes Samson to be born for the expressed purpose of delivering his people. Here, Almighty God is going to bring about salvation out of nothingness. Davis, I think, hits it right on. He says, God brings about salvation in the face of impossible human odds. He displays his power precisely when and where his people can contribute absolutely nothing. And all in order to lift our eyes to himself so that we will have no illusions or delusions about where our help is found. God is working this whole story, bringing about salvation out of nothingness to allow us, to enable us, to encourage us to lift our eyes and fix them upon him and not think, oh, look at how great we are. We really got ourselves out of that one. Note, too, the connections in the context. Jephthah last week, two weeks ago, makes a vow that leads to the death of his daughter. God now makes a vow with a barren woman that leads to life in Samson and life for the nation. You see, when we take our eyes off of who he is, we live like I am, and I am, then God becomes my servant, and God becomes unnecessary. And this is where the people are as we enter into Judges chapter 13. In 13.6, the story continues. It says, and then the woman, let's just stop for a second. The woman, Manoah's wife, a woman, this woman. In 14, Samson's mom, like what is her name? Would you just tell us already? 19 times in 13 and the beginning of 14, she's called the woman, this woman, a woman, his wife, his mom. I think, again, the writer of this story is trying to give us a clue about what we're going to experience over the next three weeks. Watch how women play a role in the story of Samson's life. She's never named She's found in obscurity and kept in obscurity, and yet reminded time and time again, she's a woman. She's a woman that God is using to do something. Over the next three weeks, now we have Samson with this Nazarite vow, no razor, no strong drink, no dead bodies, and now the role that women play in his life. And so, in four, it continues... I'm sorry, in six, and the woman came and told her husband, hey, a man of God came to me, and she begins to recount, this is all the things that the angel said to me. And then a little bit later in eight and nine, Manoah then cries out to the Lord, and he says, oh God, would you come again? Allow the angel to come. Lord, we need some more details. God, we need more help. We need more information if we're to do what you're calling us to do. God, you have to tell us the plan. Give us the exact formula for how this kid's life is supposed to go. 
So, Manoah prays and God hears him. It says in verse 9 that God listened to the voice of Manoah. Let us not breeze past this phrase as if it's something that's like in our, oh, that's a given category. We become so used to reading through scripture that we miss the miracle right there that Manoah prayed and God listened. That almighty God would condescend that he would stoop down to give us his ear and hear our prayers. That the Lord hears us is the most crucial matter in prayer. And so... The angel is sent back to Mrs. Manoah, and again, the focus is on the woman, and so she goes, and she grabs her husband, and now the angel has come back, and he's like, okay, okay, tell him what you told me, tell him what you told me. In verse 11, the angel begins to speak. Manoah says, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And interesting, the angel says, I am. Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah says, would you send the angel to give us more information? Now the angel has come and what's the new information that he gives here in these verses? What are the plans? What are the details that he gives him? Nothing. The angel comes all the way again and tells him absolutely nothing new. He says, hey, look, everything I said, do that. Everything I already commanded, be careful to observe. In other words, just obey what I've already told you. You don't need more revelation. You don't need more information. You need to faithfully obey what I've already revealed. And how many of us in our lives are like, God, would you just give me more details? God, would you just give me more information? Would you tell me when? Would you tell me who? Would you tell me where to go? Would you tell me at what time to go? God, would you tell me who to marry and when to marry them and what I'm supposed to do in my life? Just give me more and more information. You see, the issue with most followers of Christ, I believe, is not a lack of information. I believe it's a failure to obey what we already know. We don't need more information. We need to obey what God has already revealed to us. And why is it that we want more details? Why is it that we want more information? I believe it's so that we can be self-reliant, so that we can be self-sufficient, self-dependent, self-sustained, and self-satisfied. If I just have the knowledge, then I can cast the Lord off and I can get after whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish. The Lord, again, becomes seemingly unnecessary because I am in the know, and when I am in the know, I am in control. God, I want answers. I don't want you. God, I just want to know, I don't necessarily want you. When I am, he is unwanted. Not so much that we would say, God, I don't want you, but functionally, the way that we live, it's just like, just give me the information, just give me what I need, give me what I want. We go after God's hand, not after his heart. But God loves us too much. He knows that it is not safe or satisfying for us to be dependent on ourselves, that only when we are satisfied and dependent on him will we have joy everlasting. 
that all of life then is designed to be dependent upon the Lord. The more and more time that I spend with people and the more and more situations that are described to me, it's not a lot of black and white. You see, oftentimes it's not like, and then do this, saith the Lord. No, 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 God keeps us in a place where we have to depend on him, where we have to fall on our knees and on our faces before him and say, God, I need wisdom from above. God, I need to understand your word. God, I need your people around me to give me wisdom so that I might follow in obedience. So Manoah, unsatisfied, continues the conversation. He says, okay, well, please let us give you a meal. He's like, no, 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 I'm gonna, you have to offer up a burnt offering to the Lord He's like, okay, well then just tell me your name. And he says to him, why do you ask me my name seeing that it is wonderful? Now there are all kinds of different theories with all the stuff that's going on here. And is Manoah like trying to manipulate the angel of the Lord? Is he trying to give him a meal so that he's now indebted to him and has to do what he wants? Or is he trying to get power over him by knowing his name because that's how they gained power over deities back then. Uh, I have no idea. Maybe Manoah's just being hospitable and polite and kind. Uh, I don't know, but what we do know is that Manoah wants more information. He wants more details. He wants more knowledge. And instead, the angel of the Lord reveals himself. He says to him, why do you ask me my name in verse 18, seeing it is wonderful? You cannot handle my name. If I were to unveil who I am, you wouldn't be able to contain it. Know that I am far more wonderful than you could imagine. I alone am he who works wonders. And then he offers the burnt offering, and the angel of the Lord goes up, and Manoah and his wife go down. They recognize that they have seen Almighty God. They want more information, and what does God do? He reminds them of who he is. Not more details, reminding revelation of who he is. In other words, he says to them, keep your eyes fixed on me. Don't worry about all of the other stuff that's going on around. You don't have to answer that question. You don't need to know that information. You just need to keep your eyes fixed on me and on me alone. Trust me. I will see you through it. I'm faithful. I'm faithful. I'm faithful. We don't need more information, brothers and sisters in Christ. We need a renewed passion in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need a renewed passion in God's personal revelation. Verse 21 says, The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Manoah's like, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. And she's like, honey, honey, no, we're not. That's, not. that's not what God's doing here. God made a promise, and God's always faithful, and he's gonna see that this vow comes to fruition. Verse 24, the story concludes. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Three miracles, 
A baby is born to a barren woman. She names him Samson, which means son of the sun or little son, likely after the pagan god for the sun. That's interesting. Miracle two, the Lord blessed him. Miracle three, the Lord began to stir him. And oh my, when Samson is stirred by the spirit, just you wait for the next three weeks. This morning and over the next three weeks, what about you and me? Am I living as if he is, or am I living like I am? Does God exist to serve you, or do you exist to serve him? Is God unnecessary in your life because you are already satisfied in this world? You already have all you want, all you need. What more could God possibly give? Do we live as if we are self-dependent? or entirely dependent upon the Lord? Am I more concerned about getting God's stuff than I am about getting God? You see, either he is sovereign warrior and pursuer, or else I am. And I begin to live like I am sovereign and warrior and pursuer. I think over the next three weeks, we're going to see Samson step into each one of these three roles. He's going to act like he is the sovereign one. He's going to go after what is right in his own eyes. I believe Samson is going to step into the position of warrior, and we're going to see him warring not on behalf of God's people, but warring for his own desires. I believe we're going to see Samson as the pursuer, pursuing not the joy and good of God's people, but pursuing the joy and the goodness of his own life. He's going to do exactly what's right in his own eyes. This morning, we have seen a people enslaved, in bondage, completely unable to do anything about it and not seeming to care to do anything about it. These were dark, dark days in the times of the judges. And yet, this also describes our hearts outside of Christ. That just as dark as these times were, so our hearts are just as dark. That outside of Christ, we are just as broken, just as lost, just as sinful, just as in pursuit of idolatry, living as if God is unwanted and unnecessary and my servant. And so this morning, the only fitting way to conclude our time is to turn our eyes to Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that by taking communion together. We remember who he is, all who he is for us in Christ. And so if the communion servers would begin to get in place and the worship team would come up. In Judges 13.5, it said that Samson would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now this is a really, really odd way to phrase it. That Samson is going to begin to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines? You see, the book of Judges and the story of Samson point us beyond Samson to the only true Savior, to the only true Deliverer. Centuries later, another angel would appear to another woman. And this woman would be a virgin, impossible for her to conceive without having first been with her husband. Yet like Manoah's wife, this woman would believe the angel and she would give birth not to a savior, but to the savior, to the great I am. 
as in Judges, the Bible describes all of us as being enslaved to various lusts and passions, slaves to sin. We were dead in our sins, completely unable to do anything about it. We were so dead that we didn't even know to cry out for deliverance to the Lord. We worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. The declaration of our lives was, I am, and he is irrelevant. But when God showed me who he is in Jesus Christ, everything changed. God no longer exists to serve me. I exist to serve Almighty God. God is no longer unnecessary, but he is the truly only necessary reality in my life. That God is not unwanted, but he is what I want more than life and breath itself. My eyes were opened to see my sin and my enslavement, and God removed my stony heart, unable to beat after and to love the things of the Lord. And he gave me a heart of flesh that I might love and treasure Jesus Christ above all else. He enabled me to turn from my sin and to trust in him alone for the salvation of my soul. Life is no longer about I am. Life is now all about who he is, the great I am. As we take communion together this morning, this is what we proclaim. And for all of those who have by God's grace seen who he truly is, who have turned from your sins and trusted in salvation, this declaration, participation in communion is for you. And so in just a moment as the worship team plays, come and take the elements and go back to your seat. We'll celebrate the Lord's life, death, and resurrection together as we proclaim his death until he returns. Brothers and sisters in Christ, sin was strong, but Jesus Christ is stronger. The debt that we owed was paid in full. My salvation is won. My debt is fully paid. In this we rejoice, in this we celebrate. He is, and I am not.